Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to Sibylline's podcast series. My name is Alex Parsons. I'm the lead analyst for America and Latin America. And today I'm joined by Louise Scott, our lead analyst for the Middle East and Africa, and Rhiannon Phillips, our associate analyst for the Middle East and North Africa. Today we're going to be covering the subject of Tunisia, where recent events have uh, seen the country descend yet further into tumult after many protests and dramatic events in the executive. Perhaps we could start, Eloise, with a little background. How have we reached the stage where the president has managed to sack his prime minister and suspend parliament? Yeah, thank you very much, Alex, and a a good introduction. Sadly, Tunisia, as you said, is descending further into chaos a little bit. We've been watching this over the last year or so, and it, it does appear to have come to a head. So going back a bit, the stage has essentially been set for this kind of crisis, really, I think, since the outcome of the democratic transition post-2011. Tunisia's democratic process has, has really been built upon kind of consensus politics with a highly divided parliament. And this is essentially what's underpinned the weak governance and poor decision-making capabilities that we've seen in the last decade or so. So more recently, Saeed's power grab is essentially, it appears to be the culmination of deepening tensions really between the two highest offices, as well as between the president and parliament more generally. And this began over a partial cabinet reshuffle about a year ago or coming up to that, that was rejected by President Saeed, which then escalated into conflict over things like control of internal security forces. There was considerable debate in the constitution as to whether they belonged sort of to the president or the prime minister. But the trigger really appeared to be a day of widespread protests driven by socioeconomic issues, as well as obviously the deepening COVID-19 crisis. And that's obviously a topic that I think Rhiannon will will discuss a bit later. So in terms of what has actually happened, President Saeed invoked the Article 80 of the Constitution, which essentially has given him greater power in the name of of what he's basically said are, are severe national security concerns. So, of course, this involved dismissing Prime Minister Hichem Machichi, who was ironically his own nomination for, for Prime Minister back in 2019. And he also suspended Parliament for 30 days, as you said. Subsequently, security forces actually barred lawmakers, including the Speaker of the Parliament, who belongs to the moderate Islamist Ennahda party. Lawmakers were barred from entering Parliament. And later, police also stormed the local headquarters of the news outlet Al Jazeera. So clearly a, a really destabilising few days in Tunisia that, that does appear to be this, this sort of culmination of deepening tensions. Said has also taken extra legal measures such as banning gatherings of more than three people. So um, it really is one to watch. But essentially the sort of the crux of this current crisis is the absence of a constitutional court. And this actually, this issue fed into tensions earlier in the year between President Said and lawmakers as I alluded to, obviously, disputes over where authority lies with regards to control over internal security forces, for example. But essentially, the absence of this court means that there's no body or authority really to judge internally whether Saeed's move is legal or not. And of course, this has also led to competing interpretations of the 2014 constitution, with Anahda and other parliamentary groups claiming that essentially what Saeed has done 
is essentially a constitutional coup. And obviously international observers have echoed that sentiment as well. Thank you very much, Eloise. That's very clear. It explains really what is happening today. But when I look at the situation, certainly having read one of your excellent recent pieces on the subject, it strikes me that there's a lot of legitimate grounds for complaint amongst the Tunisian people. They were at the forefront of the Arab Spring in 2011. The Anafta party seemed to promise so much. And yet they've had 10 governments or more than 10 governments in the last 10 years. And as you say, there's been a total absence of socioeconomic development. Their growth rate has collapsed and gone into reverse. Does all this mean that, you know, partly as a result of the constitutional court or just the economic prospects in general, that the future of for political stability in Tunisia is under profound threat. How do you see things playing out? Yeah, well, again, that's a very good summary of kind of where we're at with the situation in Tunisia. I think in terms of prospects of political stability going forward, there's certainly an urgent need to kind of rebuild this public trust. As you rightly said, Tunisians are are feeling increasingly frustrated with government. They were promised that democracy would bring them job opportunities and greater um, opportunities for socioeconomic development. And obviously that just hasn't happened. So rebuilding this trust um, is obviously vitally important, but there are clear concerns of democratic backsliding at the moment. I think it's also worth noting that actually old regime elites appear to be making something of a comeback, particularly in the last couple of years with elections in 2019. And I think this just shows really clearly the trend of, of sort of public sentiment shifting away from the so-called revolutionary forces like Anahda that have obviously been major parliamentary forces since around 2012, 2013. So this shift almost back to the sort of the old guard, I think just really shows how frustrated young and disenfranchised Tunisians are with the situation. So in terms of sort of prospects of stability, I, I, I think it really hinges upon a couple of main points, I'd say. Firstly, and probably most importantly, President Said's does remain quite popular due to his sort of anti-corruption efforts. He was elected, obviously, as an independent in 2019, and he does have some support for his recent measures. It's interesting, the reaction within Tunisia has been quite split. Criticism has largely been directed at Anahda, but there has obviously been some internal criticism of Said as well. That said, he does need to prove his commitment to sort of national dialogue, which he has advocated, and this will help to ensure buy-in from civil society, trade unions, and things like that, which are obviously hugely influential in Tunisia. National dialogue efforts, I think, will be particularly important, and that will be a really good sign of prospects of of improving political stability, as as these efforts do have precedence in Tunisia post-2011. National dialogue efforts were, were particularly instrumental in preventing the breakdown of the democratic transition around 2013. So I think this will be a really strong indicator and will certainly be key to ensure that all parties who, who do play a role in Tunisia's political landscape do feel like things are heading in the right direction, hopefully. And then sort of secondly, and before I pass on to Rhiannon, there's a regional angle to consider, I think, in, particularly in the longer term. I certainly I'm quite concerned that obviously if Tunisia does descend into more sort of political chaos, that obviously it could become a sort of a, a proxy battlefield, which I think would be really devastating for Tunisia's own interests. Obviously, in reaction to uh, President Said's move in the last few days, there has been sharp criticism from Turkey, who obviously have been have been major supporters of Anahda and sort of other Muslim Brotherhood affiliates across the region. But then Said's moves have drawn support from the likes of the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Egypt. That's a dynamic that that we could really see playing out if Tunisia isn't able to sort of stabilise itself internally. 
Thank you, Eloise. That's fascinating. I think we all hope that those indicators do come to pass and that stability does actually return. But yeah, I think you're touching on the, the regional angle. It's, I think, really interesting. And you immediately highlight the fact that Turkey, perhaps, and others on one side support the sort of moderate or so-called moderate Islamist enacta, while, say, the UAE has always been strongly against that further tendency is in favour of the present Saeed. Tunisia isn't, you know, naturally one thinks of a, a major regional player, but of course it played that, you know, extraordinary role at the start of the Arab Spring. Rhiannon, is there anything you could say about how these events are likely to impact Tunisia's foreign policy and indeed the region more widely in the context of these sort of democratic concerns, but also in the context of, you know, the post-COVID environment? Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Alex. As Eloise said, you know, the reaction to the last couple of days has been quite split, but we have actually seen that the, the ousting of the of parliament has been celebrated amongst the Tunisian people who have actually hailed the, the lifting of parliamentary immunity and the sacking of the prime minister. But ultimately what they're asking for and what they're celebrating is the prospect of you know, President Saeed implementing some sort of policy reform um, in reaction to, to their grievances over the last decade, really. And Saeed's invoking of the article definitely kind of signals an acknowledgement towards the need for this political reform. And Eloise has kind of spoken about briefly about the, the prospects of what political stability might look like. But concerns definitely remain both you know, domestically and in the region over the wider consequences of a protracted political impasse and government deadlock as a result. Ultimately, the implications of Tunisia's constitutional crisis also kind of rehash the question that's in the region of what place political Islam actually has in um, contemporary um, democratic governments. And this kind of could cause wider ideological divides and risk flaring relations between secular and Islamist movements. And so as part of this struggle against political opponents, particularly in Ahda, President Said must be wary of the implications of actually creating kind of a protracted political vacuum in which we can see militant groups such as Islamic State kind of exploiting this political insecurity as they did, you know, back in 2016, 2017. And when you talk about wider implications, we're definitely seeing, you know, in, in the likes of in Iraq and Syria, this kind of re-emergence of Islamic State. So that's definitely something that must kind of be considered. And when we talk about implications of economic policy, with political instability definitely comes deepening of a financial crisis in a country. And especially when the two are so delicately intertwined, as is the case in Tunisia, you know, you've seen the deterioration of socioeconomic conditions definitely driving such a distaste towards the government over the last decade. The uncertainty around the president's next steps and what this political stage might look like in the next 30 days and even longer will definitely place considerable pressure on an already kind of fragile domestic banks within Tunisia and the return on equity at these leading Tunisian banks, such as the, the Banque de l'Habitat and the Banque de Tunisie, have already recorded like massively significant dips. Despite even the impacts of the pandemic, as I'll go on to talk about later, and falling tourism numbers, Tunisia's public debt has already significantly risen alongside political instability over the past decade. We're seeing more than a twofold increase in public debt since 2010, and it's actually reached 87.6% of the country's GDP currently. You know, we've seen with other nations such as Jordan and Lebanon who have faced kind of large scale political insecurity, that an inability to enforce decisive reforms, economic reforms, will also then threaten the country's ability to re continue receiving multilateral third party financing. And in particular, we'll see this being a massive strain on Tunisia's recent $4 billion IMF negotiation. And the president, therefore, is going to have to you know, find this really, really fine balance between implementing these austerity measures that have been put forward by the IMF, ma making massive cuts to the public sector, 
but then also ensuring that these reforms don't incite further civil unrest and public criticism, as we've seen be an issue with other wider regional players. And then further, you know, Saeed's decision is also, as you said, going to have massive implications on Tunisia's foreign policy and their potential relationships with not only regional, but also international allies. So Eloise touched on this, but, you know, you, you have at the moment massive kind of split support in the region. We've got you know, players who have long relied on Tunisia to be that beacon of stability and regional democracy. And it's often been heralded, as you stated, you know, the success story of the Arab Spring Revolution, where it all started. And actually regional leaders, particularly such as the UAE and Saudi, are very much keen to avoid not another round, but similar sort of revolutions from, from sparking off. And then in light of this, we've seen kind of quick responses from world leaders who have called for calm in the face of Tunisia's political crisis. And then, as Eloise said, we've had the Qatari Sheikh Taman bin Hamad Afani appealing to parties, asking to adopt, the, adopt this track of dialogue that they did in similar fashion to 2013 and 2014. But then further than this, when we're not only talking about regional players, but I think looking at international players is definitely important in this context. Because what's crucial at the moment is that we've seen like a marked deterioration in human rights abuses since the beginning of the year in Tunisia, with thousands of protesters arrested, violent dispersals and the accusations of torture when people are in custody. And so the continuation of such violations, which is now on such a public stage, is going to really threaten support from key players such as the US and France. And especially, you know, when we see that the US have promised 500 million dollars in aid to, to Tunisia and President Biden just can't be seen to condone regimes who allow such abuses. And finally, the massive thing at the moment is what the implications of such a political deadlock will have on an already worsening and catastrophic health crisis. So the COVID pandemic has obviously added to the tensions between within parliament and amongst the people. Tunisians are extremely frustrated at the government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. And whilst there's been, you know, massively strict lockdowns and movement restrictions, which have severely stunted and damaged economic growth, as we've seen all throughout the world, this has not even necessarily translated into a mass curbing of infections within the country. And it's definitely not even eased the health crisis. You know, currently Tunisia is facing its worst wave yet of the pandemic, despite lockdown measures. And it's recorded one of the highest death rates in the world, with medical facilities completely overwhelmed. And the government's handling continues to be criticised. You've got the recent curfew that's just been implemented, as Eloise stated, and low vaccination rates being at the centre of grievances. Just for a statistic, currently there's 23 doses being offered per 100,000 people in Tunisia and about 2.6 million out of a population of 11 million having received only at least one dose. And a couple of weeks ago, the government actually promised opening up dozens of vaccination centres, but this only turned into kind of mass mobs of crowds being turned away due to supply shortages and confusion around appointments. And naturally, frustrations grew, medical staff were attacked, and violence actually broke out in these centres. And President Saeed had to ask the army to take control of it. And so in light of this, I guess the government has had to ask for financial assistance from neighbouring countries, again, from Gulf states, the UAE and Saudi Arabia. But as I previously stated, this financial and physical aid could be compromised if the country continues to destabilise. And so it's a pretty bleak picture in front of us. I think that the, the kind of protracted and, and longer the, the political deadlock goes on, then the more we're going to see the implications on such policy. Thanks very much, Rhiannon. That's, as you say, a pretty bleak picture. That health crisis sounds you know, absolutely appalling. But is there a risk, do you think, that you know, support that Tunisia so clearly and desperately needs from its friends it is going to be compromised in the way that you suggested it might be for the US by, you know, this sort of proxy battle over Islamic government between those who support the Muslim Brotherhood and then after and 
and the like, and the regional allies like you say UAE and Saudi who are against it are are we going to see you know that crisis worsen and and you know already presumably it's having a massive impact on you know how overseas companies operate in the country are those two things inevitably going to get worse over the next three months would you say I think without you know taking a wholly negative stance and I think it is going to get worse before it gets better I think it's basically going to, to going to come from how long this extension and this political deadlock lasts for as I said you know we've seen an extremely quick response from from so many regional players that that kind of makes you think that this political crisis is very dire for them and the fact that you know they will want to support Tunisia in any way they will but the, the kind of tensions politically that are going on in the parliament. And, and as I said, the, the involvement of kind of Islamist groups as well will definitely put more of a strain on it. I think the main thing for me for the region is this re-emergence of extremism and, and militancy um, is not just happening in Tunisia, but it's definitely something that's in the back of the minds of, of many regional players that they obviously don't want to see happen. And so the financial aid could continue there and that could be kind of a, a steer for, for definitely Gulf states in the UAE and Saudi Arabia. To, to keep this financial and physical aid going. But as I said, that, you know, the, the destabilization of a country um, will definitely impact that and, and business, you know, operations will, will be severely disrupted. But I think it all depends as well on, on kind of the COVAX scheme and whether kind of international states and wider states pump more vaccines into that. I know that Tunisia is receiving a lot of their vaccines through the COVAX scheme and doses have started to ramp up in the last couple of weeks with you know, wider nations and Western states promising more vaccines, but it's just the wasting game at the moment. And the thing is, is that government had promised a certain amount of vaccines by a certain date. And again, this kind of pandemic fatigue grew out of that. Um, and I think it's it's mainly just that the Tunisian people are frustrated with promises that just aren't being delivered. So yeah, the, it will definitely get worse before it gets better. But there are kind of hopes for for certainly the pandemic to ease if Western states and surrounding neighbours who do have leftover supplies to get those across to Tunisia. Thanks, Rhiannon. Well, let's, as you say, hope that the, that situation does ease and that everyone's determination to see Tunisia succeed you know, pays off in, in the short term. But finally, Eloise, just to show our listeners, perhaps who have interest on the ground, some idea the, the protests and violence that we've seen to date uh, is it on it's on an increasing trend is it tend to sort of focus around you know fr- friday prayers is it something that seems to happen spontaneously or is it very localized and how do you see it developing over the next couple of weeks yeah i think i mean just looking at Tunisia over the last sort of year or so obviously covid has been hugely disruptive to movement and things but really since january we have seen a resurgence in protest action Tunisia has long been one of these countries that that has a very, very active civil society. Protests and strikes are are very common and they have been for years. So it's not that it's anything necessarily new, but I think something that is concerning is is that, as as Rhiannon touched on, since January, there have been some escalatory protests, particularly in response to police brutality. So whereas protests did flare earlier in the year with regards to socioeconomic issues, they quickly actually became focused on police brutality. And that's really been put on the government as sort of responsible for that. I think the government is feeling quite anxious. It's realising, obviously, that socioeconomic strife is deepening. And that is potentially what has led to this sort of uh, increasingly tough crackdown on any form of unrest. But like I said, this isn't anything in terms of the unrest side of things. It's not anything especially new. Protests can be quite widespread, but equally 
often that they are more localized. So we have seen a lot of protests in sort of central and southern areas that are very industry specific. Um, so we've seen blocks on roads that lead to mines and things like that, because people are still protesting primarily around the lack of job opportunities. And the more disenfranchised areas in Tunisia do tend to be the border areas, but also central Tunisia, basically away from the northern northern regions. So, yeah, I think certainly protests do tend to be localised. But obviously, if we do see growing frustrations, it could spill over into more widespread action. And just going back to the point you made earlier, I think it's, it is interesting to note uh, with regards to sort of regional influence and internal dynamics, that is something that could could really flare tensions. I, I don't think necessarily the involvement from, from actors such as the UAE and Turkey is anything especially new, but obviously it does really pave the way for, for potentially more exploitative behaviour um, from those sort of regional actors. I think as well, going forward, it'll be interesting to see if the US applies more pressure if it does determine that Saeed's actions are sort of extrajudicial, there is le- leverage there that the US can use, particularly with regards to an aid package uh, that I think was recently agreed of about 500 million. So there are certainly measures that can be taken by the international community, but definitely on the ground, the situation will probably remain quite volatile. Thanks very much, Eloise. I think that's really, really interesting. And, and you know, I, I think it's probably fair to say that the UAE, Saudi, and, and certainly Egypt would not mind at all if uh, President Saeed was more successful to the cost of Inafta. But let's hope for the best for Tunisia as a country in general. And uh, thank you both. Um, That was fascinating. And now with me to have a look at the important events in the week ahead and possibly weeks ahead is Dr. Guo Yu, our lead analyst for the Asia Pacific region. Thanks, Alex. So looking at our radar for the next week around the globe, starting with Asia Pacific, India begun on the 28th of July uh, all the way to the 3rd of August. It's the Martyrs Week. It's not a public holiday, but local Maoist and Naxalite insurgent groups uh, will observe a period to commemorate their lost fighters. While activity from militant Naxalites has reduced in recent years due to a security crackdown, attacks during this period could not be ruled out. Security is likely to be very tight in area with greater Nazi-like presence, such as parts of uh, Chhattisgarh, Telangana, Jharkhand, Maharashtra states, as well as at interstate border checkpoint. Looking west to Africa, on 30th of July, supporters of former President Jacob Zuma in South Africa has pledged to march to the headquarters of the ANC party in Johannesburg to call for his release. Heavy security presence is likely around the event, which may result in some clashes. However, a high level of attendance is at, at this moment unlikely, uh, mitigating the threat of a repeat of the violence and looting seen earlier this month. And then in the US, the biggest thing this week is arguably the federal uh, eviction moratoriums uh, that will end on 31st of July, uh, Saturday. So it has been a crucial support in keeping people in housing despite falling behind on rents throughout uh, this past year, as many of whom uh, were impacted due to uh, the pandemic and endured economic hardship. Some local authorities have enforced their own uh, eviction freeze 
that extends uh, for a little bit longer. For example, in New York, they get an extra month ending at the end of August instead of this month. So while many of those income has been affected by the pandemic, we'll be very unhappy with the withdrawal of such safety nets. We do not expect it will trigger any significant protests or unrest. That said, depending on the U.S. post-pandemic economic recovery, it may well have a lasting impact on the country's socioeconomic health. As most recent data suggests that perhaps more than 6 million are behind on rent, and nearly a million say that eviction is very likely for them in the next two months. Moving towards the South, in Latin America, Mexican and Russian humanitarian support for Cuba will reduce socioeconomic pressures in the next two to six weeks. The provision of aid and political support could also strengthen Cuban government's hands in their efforts to suppress what is regarded as a very rare anti-government protest and unrest. So both Mexican and Russian governments have warned against outside interference in Cuba. Separately, uh, Mexican President López Obrador's recent critical remarks about the U.S. embargo on the island are likely to drive tensions in the U.S.-Mexico relations. Lastly, not the least, in the Middle East, on the 5th of August, Iranian President-elect Ibrahim Rassi is due to take office. This will allow indirect talks with the U.S. on the nuclear deal to resume. He assumes the presidency amid recent outbreaks of unrest and deepening socioeconomic strife. So that's a nutshell of what we'll be looking very closely for the, for the next week. For more information, please do not hesitate to contact us uh, via email info at zipline.co.uk. Thank you.